We're in Hebrews chapter 2 again this morning, and I hope that you're delighted to be here uh, to find yourself again in this epistle as we've begun with verse 1 in chapter 1, seeing first the supremacy of God uh, in the person of Jesus Christ, and then continuing with chapter 2 as we began last week. And in this prior week, when we began chapter 2, we saw a strong warning. The warning began with the very first words, and that warning was to pay much closer attention to what we have heard. The warning is then soon accompanied by the consequences of failing to heed such a warning. And then we see that that consequence is in fact drifting away, drifting away from the word that we have heard, drifting away from the Savior of whom the word proclaims, of who is the living word. It's a powerful statement if we can truly understand what is meant by the one who is the word and that there is a great danger in drifting away. This is why we search the scriptures and this is most certainly why at every opportunity we preach the gospel in every venue, in every season, to both the regenerate and the unregenerate. The very essence of the text summarizes what we believe to be the gospel of Jesus Christ and that it reveals initially the natural propensity of man to wander. Not only does it do this, but for us to desire for things that are temporary and of self-service are brought to the forefront that we would see those things that will in fact distract us and cause us to drift. We often would describe this default state of mankind as total depravity. And no simpler could it be listed than in the last few weeks as we study the text where we're strongly urged to pay much closer attention lest we drift away. But the gospel would be incomplete if it just ended there to be a warning simply that we may drift away if there is no prescription for the problem of drifting away. Of course, to remain true to that word which was once heard, once heard, it means that we must reverently exalt and serve and love the Savior of whom it speaks. In place of certain death, you may have life, eternal in his name and no doubt that you may find it obvious that this is the Jesus who is the Messiah so we boil down all what we've seen from Hebrews chapter 1 and then in the first portion of chapter 2 that we studied last week and we have this essential message do not stray from the master and his saving message this is what we have do not leave that saving gospel for any other, for any other gospel is not saving. Nor does it speak of one whom can save, for it must contain a false Christ and a false message. We saw that there was an appeal here to the reverence of the Hebrew people in regards to the messenger and the message of the Lord as it had been given to the forefathers by the ministering spirits of Christ, these being the angels. 
And then Hebrews 1 sought to make the very same point that we noticed last week, and that is that the angels are lower in class and infinitely lower in value than Christ, for one is creator and one is the created. The supremacy of Christ is really being driven home in the first chapter, but we noticed that the word had previously been spoken as it was revealed last week through the angels, and yet men revered it as holy word of God. Very interesting that it comes at the lips of angels. They realized that there was a punishment for transgressions and a punishment for disobedience that would certainly come, and it was a reality for those who would neglect this word of God that was established in the first covenant, being it conveyed by the angels to men as we see. So simply to, to concentrate that down, we saw that this word came at the lips of angels, it being the word of God sent to man, and even as it comes through a messenger... Men said, this is serious, we must live by it. It's certainly from God. And then today we have a more sure word that is from Christ himself, spoken by Christ himself, the messenger being the message. And there is our strong warning to pay close attention, much closer attention to Put it even more simply that men were fearful, though the message was not in one was in one sense second hand from God, though it was from God Himself, then to the angels, then to man, and soon after we have a reminder that under such covenant would be a punishment for negligence. And again, we see one of these rhetorical questions that we have throughout all of the New Testament epistles. This one is posed about the implications uh, suffered should the saving word be neglected in its current and final form. That being described in these last days spoken to us in His Son. There's a great punishment. There's a death that is faced if we're Negligent concerning the word of God as it comes from the person of Jesus Christ. The form of the New Testament believer is to follow the word of Jesus Christ. Not only does that mean the word spoken simply from Christ, but to see that from the very beginning every word was spoken of Christ and by the pre-incarnate Christ, even in the Old Testament, that it would testify of Him and His coming, and then again of His second coming. This is the gospel. How can we, it says, neglect so great a salvation? And that's sort of where we ended last week. How can we make such a distinguishment amongst the word of the first covenant and the words of Christ in the transmission to men from his very lips in the second covenant. How can we say that one is lesser than the other? In fact, the people of the time, the, the argument here is that they would receive the word from the angels and count it maybe even as higher than the word that had brought salvation, that had brought life. The first covenant is transmission by angels 
and the word of the latter covenant brought by Christ himself. It's the later, the greater covenant. This is the final promise sealed in the blood of the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Our biblical synopsis of this would be, the, it would read something like this. The word initially spoken through the angels gives the law. The law, a wonderful yet condemning grace of God that to this day even serves as a schoolmaster as we're taught in, in biblical text. It does not bring salvation, but rather it unearths the truths of who we are as sinful man in opposition to God and his expectations and his commands. The word given through the angels is but a mystery, but a foreshadow of Christ as it reveals the heinous nature of sin against a just and holy God that man may no longer live in ignorance but that he is aware of his crime. So here it is, that grace of God that is condemning, that man is now aware of his sin, that he knows what is expected of God, yet there still remains no righteousness. Now this by no means is pardoning grace at this point to say that this grace is ineffectual or ineffectual rather because there's no salvation. It's actually very wonderful that man would be able by this law to see sin. But there is no reconciliation by the law for yet has lived a man until Christ comes that could fulfill the law, that could keep such a law. But there is then, in another word, one who can in Christ. The law provided no righteousness except that it be kept by Jesus Christ. The word that we must anchor to, that we must not drift away from, the word is the word of Jesus Christ. This is the word of salvation, the word of justification, the word of reconciliation and sanctification. This is the word that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, King of kings and Lord of lords. The first word as it is related to the angels is the word of condemnation and how much more so will we receive judgment should we nullify the word that came from the being, the supreme being, Jesus Christ, who is our salvation. The penman says there is no escape. And so this morning we come again to verse 3 so that we can examine the second half. Again, last week we read this. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Confirmed. But it begins with after it was first spoken through the Lord. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amazing word. The only reason that we would assemble here this morning, that we would sit and hear the gospel message because of this very word. And that is why the penman addresses these people because it is that saving word. This particular part of the verse begins to depict a contrast between the saving word and the word given to angelic beings. 
Just like the first portion of Hebrews chapter 1 was to provide information that would cause us to remind ourselves Christ is supreme, so is this message given to remind us that the message that Christ brings is supreme in comparison to the word before. The word that was yet to be fulfilled. In one sense, we separate the two so that we can wrap our minds around the text. But the truth is that the word of Christ has always been. The word of God has always been the message of Christ. Though it has been a a great mystery until his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension. Until the Holy Spirit comes to bring to us all truth concerning Christ. This particular word, though, as its reference, was given to the fathers of the Hebrew peoples and to their fathers. You know, we still have a need to pay closer attention. We're still fighting this battle, and this is the battle that is spoken of in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, where it says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and against rulers of the darkness of the world and against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. See, the problem is that there's this issue with man that he would drift away from the word that is the word of Christ that is the saving word and because of that we realize that this is the spiritual battle being described and depicted in Ephesians chapter 6 and that this is a historical word that we shouldn't as a modern church or as a current church a last days church change the message of the gospel or change the way that things have been done in the past because the truth is the Bible and we saw it last week in Deuteronomy chapter 13 which I'll, I'll, I'll bring up again later, it described don't go after anything other than what has been brought to you, that what has been taught in times past. Why? Because God is unchanging. The gospel is unchanging. The message of Christ is simple, so simple that it doesn't need to be changed. And we must be reminded that not only is the gospel eternal, but that also means that it's historical. Historical in that it's unchanging from the beginning and all the way to the end and even before the beginning and after the beginning. It's the eternal word of God. In fact, what the penman is saying is stay and hold fast to this message. And it is no strange message, but a message that is traceable. Throughout history, where we as New Testament saints would begin our critique of our own beliefs, that we go back and say, is what we're doing now, does it fall in line with historical church matters? Does it fall in line with historical church doctrine? Does it fall in line with the historical beliefs about Jesus Christ? We wouldn't go to the salesman of a product and ask ask him about how it works if we have the inventor right there, if we have the creator. Likewise, the church shouldn't look for someone new, someone who's been around 30, 40, 50 years to put a spin on Christianity that's never been seen before or never been heard before. When in fact we have the unchanging word of God. That is Jesus Christ. We also saw in our evening study. 
that which I brought out in Deuteronomy 13. It said, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises. I lost my place here. Excuse me. Let's just turn there. Deuteronomy chapter 13. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder and the sign or wonder even comes true concerning he spoke to you saying, let us now go after other gods whom you have not known and let us serve them. You shall not listen. Isn't that amazing? If I could bring one verse before every television station, before every church in the world concerning Jesus Christ, this would be a great one to start, especially for the Western church. Don't go after the signs and wonders. Don't go after this new modern religion. But go after the Christ that is and was and is to come. The unchanging Christ. And in this text, we have the eternal truths of the gospel. We have the finished, complete work of Christ depicted upon the cross. And we have in it the definition of what the redemption of Christ was. And what it still continues to be. The word was first spoken, excuse me, through the Lord. This is a word spoken, as I said, from the beginning. Pre-incarnate Christ. This is the message even given to Adam in the garden. That death is on its way. There must be reconciliation. There must be redemption. This is the gospel veiled in Genesis. Sin must be paid for. Yet God shall not lose his people. This is why Satan came and sinned himself. Because he wanted to prove that God could not save his people. If he could but get Adam and Eve to partake of the fruit. That God would be somehow lesser. That he would be a liar. And in that case he would not be God. But the truth is that he had no understanding. Because he is a created being, his mind was not on those things that were eternal, but it was limited in knowledge. Certainly he knew not of the redemptive power of the Son, nor did he know that he would come and take on flesh. But this is the gospel in Genesis, the ultimate foil of Satan's plan. More importantly, we take note to realize that even the words given at the lips of angels was also first spoken of the Lord. You know, there's a distinguishment there as we look at the text in Hebrews chapter 2 of the word given to the angels and the word that was spoken by the Lord Himself. But the truth is that no word has ever been given on behalf of God to men lest it come through the work of Jesus Christ. There's no gospel, there's no word of God without Christ both after the incarnation and before the incarnation we remind ourselves of this truth that we have our eyes open to the sovereignty of God throughout all of life's circumstances 
But the true premise behind verse 3 here is that we be reminded that the saving word that had come to the people who were Hebrew people, of whom they had received this particular letter, this particular epistle, as we read it this morning, they received this transmission that it had proceeded from the mouth of God in the person of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. We are also given an indication that they had received this from their fathers. In the faith that had received it during the early earthly ministry of Christ. If this word is truth as we certainly esteem it, as we know that it is, then it is also the affirmation that Jesus Christ is the truth and without him there is none. There is no truth. There is no morality. There is no righteousness. There is definitely no salvation. Again, the epistle is building upon the truths of Christ as prophet, priest, and king, as we noted throughout the first chapter of the Hebrews. And as the word was first spoken through the Lord Jesus, he was proclaiming the need for salvation through him, and there is no other alternative. That's what God the Father is saying as we read it in Hebrews chapter 1, that has always been the proclamation of a true Christian, of a true disciple, of a true prophet of God. There is no alternative. I'll say it this way. Unequivocally, Jesus Christ has today, yesterday, and forever the monopoly on salvation. Some people hate to hear that. There's no other name given under heaven among men by which we should be saved. But only by one, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Only God can save. Only man can pay the penalty for man's sin. Therefore, we have one who fits the bill, Jesus Christ, both God and man. Only God can pay. The Bible spells it out. In verses like this, that Jesus Christ is in fact God, and that our God is one God, the triune God, that He can, because of His infinite value and power, be both man and God. There is none else besides Him. The Lord, He is God. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord. 1 Kings chapter 8, that all the people on earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is none else. Several here, but I believe my favorite would be Isaiah chapter 43. You are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe and understand that I am He. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I even, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. doesn't get much plainer than that. But just the next chapter, he says, I am the first, I am the last, and beside me there is no God. So what we have is a depiction of Jesus Christ. And that the word of the Lord has always come through Christ. 
whether it be pre-incarnate or after the incarnation. And as I said, the word has always come this way and we saw it in chapter 1 and we see that it came by prophets, by dreams, by visions and it was made known by signs and wonders. It's authenticated that these methods, these all were divine workings of Christ himself. But you know, man is very stupid. Man is extremely fallible. Man is extremely ignorant. So ignorant and so incapable of understanding that Christ had to take on flesh. And what did Christ do when he comes? He didn't have a new message, but he explained the message of the gospel even from the Old Testament. He said, here it is before you. Let me quote it to you. Let me put an understanding to you. Here is the truth. Christ is preaching the very same gospel that has always been present but veiled in the Old Testament. But at this time, He did so by the very lips of His incarnation. He graciously allowed some to put a face with the name. In His divine provision, God made the gospel simple. Believe and have life in His name. I said that because He made it simple and we still mess it up. Amen? We still, as did His own people, receive Him not. I believe the reality of our rejection of the message of Christ, even it is as it was spoken by Christ during His earthly ministry. I believe it's revealed in Luke chapter 20, if you'd like to turn there. Consider the message that we have before us. The message as it first came through prophets, through visions, through angels. And now it is coming again and it will only come at this point through the finished work of Christ on the cross. He only, as it says in the first chapter, speaks through His Son. But we see beginning in verse 9. It says, And He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. Let me stop right there. Here's the vineyard, the earth, all of God's creation given to man to take care of, but it doesn't belong to us. Your possessions don't belong to you. They're a grace. They're sustenance from God. And it says, He rented it out to the vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, He sent a slave to the vine growers. So they would, they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard, but the vine growers beat him and sent away him empty-handed. There's the picture. Christ, knowing that man is full of thought, that man can never perfectly worship God as he should or love God as he should, but yet he commands man to come, come before me, come as a living sacrifice and give up some of that that doesn't even belong to you. Lay down your life. Why? Because it's not your life. Give your offerings. Why? Because they're not your possessions. 
Yet they would give him none, send him away empty-handed. And it says, and he proceeded to send another slave. And they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent away him empty-handed. Again, the prophets, the men of God before that we turn away, that we've shunned, that the Old Testament says that they've beaten, that Israel has denied. And he proceeded to send a third, and this one also wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But remember the text? He came into his own and his own received him not. This is the one who is heir of all things. The one who has the right to rule the jurisdiction, the authority. It says, but the vine grower saw him. They reasoned with one another saying, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. And the truth could be nothing further. But yet, as it's hidden a mystery, it is all so true. It's kind of this odd dichotomy that we see. Let us kill him and there'll be no one else to give it to and it'll be ours. The truth that men placed Christ upon the cross because they thought that they would take the kingdom that belonged to him. And the fact is that they couldn't. That no other man could rule. No other man could take the place of Jesus Christ. But then the saying is true. That we will kill him and the inheritance will be ours because of the sin that you've committed. You have killed Christ. You've placed Christ upon the cross. But yet believing in Him, you have an inheritance. It's wonderful. It's both false and true. False from the perspective of man and his limited knowledge of what was happening on the cross. But true because God's plans can't be foiled. The Messiah would come even before any man was created. He would come to reconcile men to God. And it says, So they, they threw him out of the vineyard and kill him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? This is the question being posed from Hebrews chapter 2. What shall we do if we neglect so great a salvation? He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyards to others. It's multi, multifaceted, the parable here. Most immediately my thoughts go to the Gentiles. It says they would give away the vineyard to others. When they heard it, they said, may it never be. But Jesus looked at them and said, what then this is that is written, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. This is the message that we see in Hebrews chapter 2. May it never be that someone would do these things. It's a reality. It's a reality for the unregenerate man. It's a reality, sadly enough, at times of the church that we reject the truth of Christ that we drift away, that we fall away, that we seek after something that is not ours. Men 
simply aren't having the true gospel. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, without the truth of Jesus Christ being applied to our lives against our will, and, and I say that, but then I saw a quote from Spurgeon, and, and it doesn't, I'll summarize it because I can't remember exactly. It is true. It's against our will, but then the reality is that it isn't because he conforms our will to his. And so we see that man in his natural state is not going to have the gospel. So what do we do? We try to change it. We try to better it. We try to alter it. We try to improve it. And the whole time, we're just slap missing it. Preachers everywhere perverting the unchanging word that has existed since before the beginning. And we're not hearing it anymore in this church. We will not have it. A false gospel. There's no better saying than let's get back to our roots. Are we rooted in the soil that is Jesus Christ? Are we rooted in the person? Are we grafted into the vine that truly is Jesus? Let's get back to our roots. Let's preach. Jesus Christ. A lot of people claim to preach like Jesus. Well, I just want to preach like Jesus. I'm just going to say the things that Jesus said. And you know what? People heard Jesus. And many died and are burning in the fires of hell after hearing the message straight from the lips of the Savior. After seeing the Savior disappearing from the tomb, resurrected, Still denying the truths of Christ. The message is, wake up, O sleepers. You can't decide to believe. You can't work your way to Christ. And you can't wait until the time is just right to receive Him. It's just not an option. The only thing that you can do is send your way to hell. The text says that it was confirmed to us by those who heard. The beautiful story of the still ongoing transmission of the gospel. Those before heard that very same word. They heard it by Christ. The apostles. The original disciples. And they confirmed the message of Christ to those who sought to convert. Here it is. The message of the Savior coming by the Savior, continuing as it does today. This is the truth of the gospel. But you know what? Chapter 1 says that the Father speaks now only through the Son. Some will say, well, I want a sign. I want a wonder. I want a miracle. Others in times past have seen those things. All of the graces of God in order that the Word would be exalted and glorified. But the most powerful confirmation is that the Word came by Christ. Therefore, in this Word, there is a threefold witness. The Word of Christ doesn't come alone because He is God. It comes with a threefold witness. Christ, the person of God, the second person. It comes with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, it is powerful in its confirmation. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. 
testifying of one whom is the greatest, who is the Savior, who is the Messiah. But some are looking for another sign. Some are looking for another Pentecost. Sadly enough, they don't realize that these things are in the Bible because they are unique, one-of-a-kind, one-time events. They're looking for God to confirm something in a way He says He will not. Rather than just simply doing things as prescribed. We need first to ask ourselves this morning, are the truths of the saving gospel that I first heard so long ago, are they confirmed today in my life? Because I submit to you that the message is confirmed by Christ and by the Holy Spirit. And that if you belong to Him, the indwelling Spirit will testify the truth of the message from the inside out. Not that you'll just know yourself, but that others may know. Your vine will produce fruit. There is a message And the message is sealed in the blood of the sender. It's sealed in the blood of the Almighty. Jesus is sending me. Jesus is sending you. So we have to ask ourselves, the gospel that we believe, is it truly the saving gospel? And if it is the saving gospel that we've heard, are we believing it? And if we're believing it, then the truth is that it is continuing just as it has. If the message ends with your hearing and it goes no further, it's a great warning. We're responsible. Responsible for sin, reliant upon Christ, but responsible to continue the message of the gospel, the word that came from our Lord, both pre incarnate. And after the incarnation that is still spoken through the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the saving message of Jesus. That we find the biblical Jesus. That we search it out to see that what we hold firm to is according to scripture. And that if it is that we remind ourselves daily for there is a judgment to come there is a hell and it's a real place and it's eternal and that there's only one saving Jesus Christ the word that came before the incarnation is a condemning word a graciously condemning word that we may find our guilt that our sins have found us out And that they're not hidden from God, but that there is, in fact, because of Christ, a Savior who is willing and able to save, who is able to forgive, who is able to pardon sin because He's able to pay for sin. It's brought to my attention that maybe we might have people from time to time in the church who may hear the message of Jesus Christ and who may believe in Christ, but may wonder, what must I do? 
question was often asked to Christ, what must I do to be saved? It's asked to the disciples and it's still asked today. There's nothing that you can do to be saved. But the truth is that what God does to save a man causes him to repent and believe. And to love the Lord. And to love Him is to keep His commandments. And so, if you're having a struggle with those things, we want you to know that the the leadership of the church is available. That you can come and talk to us that there's nothing to be embarrassed about. Salvation is nothing embarrassed. We all have the same need here. We all have sinned the same sins, whether anyone wants to admit it or not. We're all guilty of the same crimes. Uh, But if there's anything that you want to talk about or that you need prayer for, please uh, come and ask Brother Charlie or myself or James, Sean, uh, really anyone who is a, a member of the church who is... Uh, particularly a man would be would be the best thing to do. But if you don't feel comfortable, even uh, as a woman, go to the women of the church. They can teach you. It's our responsibility. This is the truth of the gospel, that we make ourselves available, servants for the sake of Jesus Christ. With that being said, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Fathers, we come before you again this day. Lord, we're so thankful for the message of Christ. And Lord, as we see everything unfold throughout this historically accurate text, Lord, we may, in our pride and selfishness, say, why could I not see a miracle? Why could I not be given a sign? Why can Christ not make himself manifest in the flesh to me and the truth is God that we have no excuse you've given us consciences we see your creation and then we have this word or that describes every encounter with Christ every sign every wonder that is necessary things that our fathers before us may not have had. Yet Abraham had seen not this many things. Yet he believed. And God, we pray this morning that you would cause us to believe. You would remind us that we have a Savior who is supreme. A Savior who is not distant, but one who is intercessor who is mediator who is living within who has sent his spirit that we not be alone Lord we pray that salvation would be a reality for someone today or that the message of the gospel would always be the first thing from our lips and the first things in our minds Lord and when we fail as we will we ask for your forgiveness We trust in your work and your word. We praise you for all that you've done in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.